I appreciate so much feeling the presence of the Lord this morning. And I like how Sister Faith said it, happy and excited in the Lord. If you don't feel that way, there's something wrong with you. It's not a criticism, it's a statement of fact. Based on Scripture, and based on personal experience and other people's personal experiences. If you don't feel good in a service like this, something's wrong. Either you have, and this, this is really going to build off what I tried to preach on last week. You may be dealing with something you don't have control over. It could be uh, one of a lot of different categories that I'll get into in a minute. But God intends for His people when they come together in a time of worship and thankfulness for there to be joy and happiness and fullness in the Lord. There's a time for heaviness. There's a time for being burdened and praying for the lost. But we haven't confronted that in this service this morning. What you should be feeling is joy and peace and happiness and excitement. And I'll say again, if you don't feel that way, something's wrong with you. So I want to encourage you to listen carefully to seek the Lord this morning, to pray silently at your seat if you feel that way, uh, that He might restore to you a sense of spiritual sanity. Isaiah 30 is where I'll start reading. If you have a Bible or want to make a note, Isaiah chapter 30. These uh, Israelites at this time are very similar to the people, they're the same people that we were reading about and John was teaching us about from Jeremiah and really every other Old Testament book we've read. And I'll just begin reading. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, that take counsel but not of me, and that cover with a covering but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth, that strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion." For his princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Hanes, and they were all ashamed of a people that could not profit them, nor be any help or profit, but a shame and also a reproach. The burden of the beasts of the south and the land, and trouble and anguish, from whence come the young and old lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent, they will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young donkeys, and their treasures upon the bunches of camels, to a people that shall not profit them." And the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, if I cried concerning this, their strength is to sit still. Now go, write it before them in a table or a tablet, note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak Unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Get out of the way, turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, because you despise His word and trust in oppression and perverseness and stay or establish your hope thereon. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly at an instant." 
And he shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water withal to the pit. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. This is the key verse I want you to get. In returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. But you said, No, for we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee. No, we'll ride upon swift horses. Therefore they that pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one. At the rebuke of five shall you flee, till you be left as a beacon upon the top of a mountain and as an ensign upon a hill. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. Therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. What does all that mean? What are we talking about? I don't want to spend the time getting into national Israel and what they were dealing with at this time. I want to use this as a parallel application to our own individual spiritual lives. And whether, and this given season, we're spiritually sane or not. That's what I want to talk about, what's on my heart today. In this um, story, Egypt represents all forms of fleshly reliance. Everything of the flesh. And the prophet tells... See, here's what was happening. The Assyrians were coming against Israel and instead of turning to God, instead of waiting on Him, instead of depending on quietness and rest in the Spirit of God, waiting on His power, they said, we're going to run down here to Egypt to get some help. And the prophet is telling them, okay, run to Egypt. On your fast horses, the ones who are chasing you are faster. They will catch you. Go on your camels. You'll run out of provisions. Go on down there to Egypt. Egypt won't be able to help. And we have a whole culture of people. This is this burden that stayed with me these last few weeks I've been trying to preach about. We have a culture of people that are systematically indoctrinated to rely upon Egyptian methods to heal them. And I'm talking about Egypt that Israel is going to get help from when it doesn't make sense. We do that all the time. I do that sometimes. You do that sometimes. And the truth is right here, right in front of us. Seventh verse, their strength is to sit still. Now, I'm not talking about a congregation of people of church. That's what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about your own spiritual upheaval inside of you. That existential friction that I preached about last week. That feeling inside that something's off, that there's this pressure, that something's not right, that you can never be fully happy in any situation you experience. Have you all felt that way? Am I the only one who's been spiritually insane lately? Y'all are all good spiritual hygiene. Everybody's chuckling. I guess you know what I'm talking about. The temptation is to trust in Egypt. The temptation is to go get help from something tangible. And these people, they weren't even a godly people that they were going to get help from. They said, maybe we can form a political alliance, give them some stuff and they'll help us. How is that any different than what people in this culture do? Let me go see my psychiatrist, give him some money, and maybe he'll help me. 
Now, do not misunderstand me. Every time I preach on mental health, I make this disclaimer. I work in a field where I come across clients who are, they have mental disability and they need medication. I think it's a lot smaller percentage than, than the medical community supposes. That's my personal opinion. I'm not going to say that psychiatrists are all bad, psychologists are all bad, and you never need to go to one. I don't believe that. You might. I've seen a whole lot of false Egyptian reliance come from those fields, and people never get better. Some of you have heard me say this. When I used to deal with the same veterans over and over, when I early on in the VA, I would talk to this one man, and he, he, he was functional. He had sleep disturbance. He had anxiety. He had an exaggerated startle response, and he got frustrated too easily, and he got angry too easily. And a few months later, I talked to the guy, and he was almost incoherent. Because as I preached last week, their solution was to medicate him to such an extent that he couldn't feel any of that stuff anymore. And the problem is he didn't feel life anymore. And I used to see this downward degeneration of his mental health and spiritual health because these Egyptian therapists thought that they were doing what was necessary. But here's the problem. If they don't understand Yahweh, if they don't understand the Messiah, they will not be able to help permanently. It's impossible. You cannot find permanent help from Egypt. As far as world empires go, how strong are the Egyptians these days? What, are, what do you think of when you think of Egypt? You know what I think of? Food. I don't know why, but I know a lot of Egyptians who own restaurants and they're really good at it. I don't think of them dominating the world or their strong nuclear arsenal or their, any of that. Right? And these people are depending on a nation that has been almost wiped off the map. They're not a world superpower and they haven't been since back then. Every fleshly reliance that we depend on will fade, it will lose strength, and it will lose hope. He says, the strength of your Pharaoh shall be your shame. Every time people go to some humanist system to get help, if there's no underlying true spiritual healing, they end up worse off than they were when they started. I've seen it over and over and over. And the trust in the shadow of Egypt, your confusion. Have you ever seen such a lost, confused generation of people because they're trusting in these shadowy methods to try to heal them? What they need is light. They're relying on shadows for help and they need light. And we who are saved, we sometimes do that as well. Their strength is to sit still. Now, 12th verse, because you, trust, because you despise His Word and trust in oppression and perverseness and stay thereon. Let me ask you all something. When you're anxious, when you're upset, when you're unhappy, when you feel like your life is in internal emotional upheaval, what do you spend your time on? Now, I can only speak for myself, but when I feel like that, I'm not spending hours reading the Bible. I'm not spending time in sincere, vulnerable prayer when I feel that way. Sometimes feeling that way will drive me to sincere, vulnerable prayer, to resting on the Lord, to quietness and confidence in Him. 
But usually, here's, here's the pattern that, that my flesh tells me to follow and what I see in a lot of my peers and people I know. Your psyche, your soul gets noisy and you try to drown it out. There's a song lyric that J.J. Heller sings a song about control, letting go of control. and She says, a moment of belief is never enough to still all the voices in my head. You have voices in your head? Oh, you might be afraid to admit it. Because the medical community wants to call you schizophrenic or bipolar or multiple personality. You've heard them. You've had thoughts come to you that aren't your own. Tell you you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. Thoughts like, you don't really believe in God. Thoughts like, oh, there is no God. How could there be? Some of you have experienced things like that. Some of you, maybe it wasn't a verbal thing. Maybe it was an image. Maybe for you visual people that apparently is most people other than me. Maybe you visualize things you shouldn't. You have this picture playing in your mind of impending doom. Maybe it's not just a thought. Whatever it is that takes your peace and your sanity, the scriptural answer, which is not the Egyptian answer, it's not the Western, I'm using Egyptian to mean metaphorically all of our reliance on um, secular humanist methods to help people that are spiritual and physical in composition. We're both. And everybody relies on methodologies founded in secular humanism discount entirely the spiritual realm. They, ex- they even go so far as to explain away your emotions by being nothing more than a biochemical response on a cellular level that you don't really have emotions. It's just what that cell told you to feel. And therefore, drug therapy. Therefore, you feel this emotion, I give you this drug and stop that emotion. Hebrews tells us, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. I love that. You notice I picked up on my belt. That was unintentional, but now that I think about it, this belt holds my pants up. It holds together my outfit. It keeps my shirt tucked in. Their belt, we've preached about it. Bobby preached a beautiful sermon a while back about the armor of God. It was meant to hold everything that mattered there together. And he's saying, and the loins, that's where you move. That's where your strength is. That's where your life is. I grab my kidneys. That, that's the part of your body that makes your body function, really. Keeps it clean. Isn't that beautiful? You think about this. The loins of your mind have to be girded up. They have to be prepared appropriately to clean up the rest of your human existence. Be sober. And hope to the end for the grace that's to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it's written, be ye holy for I am holy. What do we think that means? Most religious people read a verse like that that says, be holy for I am holy. And they go into immediate emotional and mental despair and say, I can never be like that. Duh. You can't be like that. It takes the power of God. And when you are like that, you won't be aware of it. 
The only person, you heard me say this, who's really humble is not aware of his own humility. The only person who is really peaceful isn't focused on himself. There is in a walk with God, when it's like it should be, there's a self-forgetfulness. And I would go even further and say there's a self-transcendence. You get past yourself and your temporary needs and your temporary desires and all the stuff of the flesh and you care about something that matters more, whether it's your brother or sister who needs something or your heavenly Father who wants your heart and your attention. In returning and rest, or in repentance and rest, shall you be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength, and you would not. Listen, some of you, myself sometimes, need to be saved from our own lives. Oh, not spiritually saved. If you're saved, you can't... I'm using religious words that maybe some people listening might not know. When you encounter God for the first time... You come to a place of realization that there's a being in the universe who is so unlike you that you don't know what to do about it. He's more powerful and mighty than you can imagine. And you come to a place of recognizing that you and everything you can offer is not enough to make yourself have what you need in order to have a peaceful life. And you throw yourself on God's mercy and you beg Him to forgive you for your sins because the Holy Spirit shows you that you are a sinner. When that happens and God makes you a new person, a new spiritual creature, gives you a new birth, you are saved to the day of redemption. You're sealed. Your soul will never be lost. You'll go to heaven no matter what. Here's the problem. We forget that, some people. And even those of us who know that on a deep level and don't really worry about whether we'll go to heaven or not, we forget the peace of God sometimes. In returning and rest shall you be saved. He's talking to Israel about natural deliverance from an army that's going to destroy them and they refused and they decided to go get help from Egypt and said and they were run down and destroyed and confounded. Our world is full of people who are like that. And I want you to think about this. Sometimes God's people are not a very good advertisement for this religion that we claim transforms your very life. Now, don't take that and say, I need to go act like I'm happy when I'm not. I need to go pretend I have peace. I don't. I'm not telling you that. What you need to be is authentic. And when you're broken and suffering, it's okay for people to see it. That's what I've preached about last week. There's a reason sometimes those thorns are in your flesh that he talked about or you're in a battle you can't get out of. Sometimes it's actually for your sanctification and not in the way that you think. I'm going to read you something from Viktor Frankl again, just like I did last week, because this, this is, he captures it a lot better than I do. I want you to hear it. Thus it can be seen that mental health is based on a certain degree of tension. The tension between what one has already achieved and what one still ought to accomplish, or the gap between what one is and what one should become. Such attention is inherent in the human being and therefore it is indispensable to mental well-being. We should not then be hesitant about challenging men with a potential meaning for him to fulfill. It is only thus that we evoke his will to meaning from his state of latency. 
I consider it a dangerous misconception of mental hygiene to assume that what man needs in the first place is equilibrium, or as it's called in biology, homeostasis, i.e. a tensionless state. What man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for a worthwhile goal, a freely chosen task. What he needs is not the discharge of tension at any cost, but the call of a potential meaning waiting to be fulfilled by him. What man needs is not homeostasis, but what I call dynamics, i.e. the existential dynamics in a polar field of tension where one pole is represented by meaning that is not to be fulfilled and the other pole by the man who has to fulfill it. You know why he calls it dynamics? That Greek word nous. He preached about your nous, that deep-seated part. It's different than the psyche. It's your emotions and desires and the things that drive you. And part of his therapeutic philosophy involved the nous as the foundation. He said you don't understand who you are. And that's what's wrong with you. And that's the same for us today. There is an internal conflict, existential friction... That sounds fancy. All it means is there's a rubbing inside of you about your own living in this world. There's a butting up between the spiritual and the physical. There is a discomfort that what you want, you can never fully grasp in this life. You won't ever arrive. You will never be fully sanctified. Paul said, not as though I had already attained or were already perfect, but I press toward the mark that I might be apprehended that I might apprehend that by which I am apprehended in Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, I keep striving, I keep what did he say? We don't need flat homeostasis. We don't need a level experience. We need an internal striving and a pushing and pulling inside of ourselves. That's what Paul is talking about. I press toward the mark. I try to lay hold on what God is See, inside of us, when God saves us, not only are we a, a dual being of spirit and flesh, but when He saves us, He puts His Holy Spirit inside of us and adds another otherworldly supernatural element that we can't understand, can't explain, and can't really describe to people. And that element inside of us gives us a taste of what the next world will be like where we will spend our eternity. And in the meantime, everything else in any other plane, any other psychological, physical understanding is going to be disappointing. I want to go practical for a minute. And we'll finish up with more of this direction we've been on. First of all, not all... Um, emotional or mental health problems are spiritual. You need to understand that first. There's a possibility that when you're an emotional wreck, when you're mentally or emotionally unstable, when you're not perceiving reality in a way that other people seem to be, there's a possibility that it's a hormonal imbalance Some of you have gone through that and corrected it naturally. Some people have to get shots of hormones or or, uh, other um, substances from their body. Tell tell a type 1 diabetic that they just have a spiritual problem and see what happens. Don't let them have insulin. See what will happen. That's one religious extreme of what I'm talking about. There are these crazy religious extremes. I, I, I knew people who were so extreme in this idea that everything could be healed through 
uh, prayer and belief that they about killed somebody through a diabetic coma because they were going to pray healing into him. Another person who destroyed his glasses because he was going to pray for visual healing. But he didn't have enough faith. That's, that's the cop-out of the religious extremists. Well, if you just had enough faith. Listen, if you could have enough faith, you wouldn't need Jesus. You'd just have your own religion. If you, if you could really have enough faith to heal your eyes and cure yourself of diabetes, why would you need a Savior? That's, that's a lot of faith. You could just self-heal yourself, poof, because you believe it. There's psychotherapeutic extremes. I already talked about those. These are people who reduce the human um, creature to a machine. And they treat it like a machine. Like sticking oil over here, filing off some burrs over here. They treat it like a mechanical apparatus. And that's not good either. There are dietary extremes that people get wrapped up in that can steal your sanity. I read an article about this woman who's from... Russia or Moldova, one of those Slavic areas over there in Europe, and she's, they call her the human Barbie. She has worked on her body in such a way that she looks like Mattel's Barbie. Some of it's makeup, some of it is diet and exercise. She's on this kick now. This is dietary extreme. Where pretty soon she's going to become so one with nature that all she has to do is drink water and air. Drink water, breathe air. She won't have to have food because food is a lower existential need. And she's going to transcend it. That's a dietary extreme. An insanity. But we in the South experience other dietary extremes, don't we? My doctor uh, called me and said, well, you need to come back in here. Your uh, cholesterol's really high, and we need to test it again. I haven't gone back yet. But I thought it could be all those butter that I eat, just piles of butter. I mean, scoop it out with a spoon. When I'm stressed out at work, I get my butter stick out of the fridge and eat a bite. And, uh, you know, I convince myself that bacon is healthy because it lubricates your brain. And so I've been eating lots of bacon grease. Good, healthy bacon, not with nitrates or these things. But there's a chance that my dietary extreme has actually uh, changed my chemistry inside. And maybe I do have high cholesterol because of it. I don't know. I'll go back and see what it says after I eat some vegetables for a few days. <laughs> there are medical extremes that our culture, boy, this Western culture really, you know, the solution for everything used to be, I'm talking about psychological issues, shock therapy. We are going to electrically destroy the part of your brain, or all of your brain, because they didn't understand different parts of the brain back then until you no longer act that way. A spiritual extreme, too, of this, people used to think that epilepsy was demon possession. If it were demon possession in every case, they couldn't cure it with a drug. They couldn't cure it with cutting out a tiny part of your brain. Demons can't be controlled like that. And so we see something that used to be a spiritual extreme that a a moderate medical approach has actually addressed. Now, there may be times that they seem epileptic and it is demonic involvement. I don't know. But my point is, it is a spiritual extreme and an illogical, unreasonable, even a fundamental one to say every time a person exhibits that behavior, there's demonic involvement. Who are you and how do you know? And once again, if that were true, the medication 
wouldn't fix it. There's circumstantial uh, issues that affect your spiritual and mental health. I'll give you an example, and this may benefit some people here. My life, you know, for a, a lot of times feels um, chaotic, out of control, always this pressure of on the verge of being crazy. And that adrenal energy that, that comes from it is like a, a drive or a high all the time. I don't think it's healthy. And so I've been trying to be more level and more reasonable and not have such an extreme Josh extreme. And I have a friend who's really organized. And I told some of you this already. Very calm, very joyful, very organized. And so I told her about, we caught up after like 10 years, hadn't seen her. I told her about how extreme I am and how I need to calm down some and be more disciplined. And uh, I said, do you have any advice? I really want to be more like like you, <laughs> more like Amy, <laughs> organized. Oh, you know how convenient it would be to not have to look for something you put over here or over here or over there and always feel like a mad professor? When I feel that way, I don't sleep much either. When you don't sleep much, it creates another psychological and spiritual insanity. Your body, let me make a side note here. Your, your body... I'm just now convincing myself of this lately, and it's changed my perspective on sleep. I've told you, I used to feel like sleep was an optional inconvenience. That sounds as silly as the human Barbie who thinks food is optional. Right? And now I'm understanding, and I'm really trying to make myself believe it, that sleep is when your body actually grows and strengthens and rehabs and defragments your brain and all this stuff. So I've been trying to convince myself sleep is good. And so this girl I asked how she organized and what advice, she said, uh, I can count on one hand the number of times in my life that I haven't made my bed. And I said, I can count on one hand the number of times this week that I haven't made my bed. I make it. I pull up the sheet, pull up the bottom bed. But I mean, put on the little extra bed spread that nobody is fancy and the little pillows. I don't know what those are all for, but they look nice. And so she said, no, that's what you have to do. You have to do that every day. And I said, why? What are you talking about? And she said, when I leave my house, my life is going to be unpredictable. I'm going to go to my job. I don't know who's going to have a crisis or a fire to put out or who's going to have something I need to help with or who's going to have some emergency. She works with kids in uh, school and church administrator type position. And she says, I, ha- I don't- cannot control my day. But I have control over how I leave my house and I can know what it's going to be like when I come back. So a little over a week ago, Saturday, I started making my bed in the morning. I mean, tuck it in all neatly. My mother would be proud of how neat it is and the pillows, little silly frilly pillows. And I don't know what it is, but I've been sleeping like twice as much. It's amazing. It's like my body knows that when I go into my room to un do my bed and unroll it methodically, I actually start realizing I can go to sleep. Some of you young people, here's something else I realize. You need to use your bed just for sleep. Don't take your phone in there and watch Netflix all night or your laptop to distract yourself from the noisiness in your own body, your own mind. I've done that before. It doesn't fix anything. It makes you wake up feeling crazy exhausted, lethargic, out of energy for life. 
It's amazing. I haven't been talking to people on the phone after about 7 p.m. at night. I haven't been texting anybody. It's actually changed my life. Now, that's what I needed. You may need other things. You may need some kind of moderation in diet. You may need, I don't know what, some exercise. You may need to realize you're beautiful, to realize you're worthwhile. I don't know what your need is. But there are circumstantial things that you can address through small changes that will help you. I'm going to move through these others pretty quickly. There's some of these issues that you may be beating yourself up about that you think you're not close enough to the Lord or that you're in a, a spiritual warfare or it's a demonic attack. It might just be dietary. You ever been around an angry meat eater when they don't get their meat? You've been around somebody when they have sugar blues? Too many donuts, too much ice cream, and they crash. Those things, those extremes, those dietary extremes have a, an anti-therapeutic effect on our bodies. There can be chemical imbalances. I've talked about that a little bit. But you could have a, some imbalance in your hormones. Something our culture faces quite a bit. And in fact... I've preached about this too, and it's so upsetting, I don't even like talking about it. Suicide rates keep rising. And they've actually done links that people who spend a lot of time on Facebook are more suicidal than people who don't. Medical studies that establish that link, the correlation. The statistical difference is enough that the correlation has been established. Am I saying Facebook is going to kill you? Of course not. But here's what happens. I preached about this and talked about Mr. Sinek who, who discussed it. It releases dopamine when you get a text pop-up, when you get a Facebook message, when somebody likes your status, your brain becomes addicted to that dopamine release. It's the same thing that cocaine does to people. And they keep overusing cocaine and pretty soon their body can't produce dopamine on its own. That's what's happening to our young people. And I'm telling you, listen, if you're under 40 years old, and sometimes it applies to, I see people who are 70 at dates on their phone texting. Well, I don't know who they're texting, but they do. But listen, I want to say especially, if you're under 40 years old, try this. Just try not worrying about your phone at night. Get a different alarm clock. I can't, I have to have my phone for the alarm. They make alarm clocks for like $5. Or try this, just tell yourself what time to wake up. You know that actually works? It works better than an alarm. How many times have you snoozed through, your, snoozed through your alarm so many times it quits going off? Mine has five snoozes. And I have an alarm now that every minute it tells me, the time is 5.30, and then the alarm, rrr, rrr, rrr. the time is 5.31, and the alarm, rrr, rrr, rrr. <laughs> you know what, seriously, when I say, I'm going to wake up tomorrow at 5.40 a.m., right now it is 9 p.m., my body does it. We have people who are addicted to the fast-paced excitement in our culture. And I want you to realize some of that may be causing your spiritual unrest. It might not be a demonic attack all the time. That should give you some peace. It should help you relax. If you say, you know what, all I need to do is eat a balanced diet and I'm going to feel better. I just need to wind down. Some of y'all are maybe like me and have trouble turning your brain off at night. I have to go through a wind down process or it doesn't work. I didn't go to sleep till 
almost four o'clock last night, and I left y'all's house at what two? Why does it take that long? My brain's going all the things we talked about. I thought about just not sleeping. I only slept less than two hours anyway. But I slept the rest of the week, so I'm not as crazy today. There is. Let me say this too before I get on to the spiritual. There's a lot of research now that, that talks about what you focus on actually re-establishes or establishes neural pathways in your brain. This book I'm reading on deep work that, that Ben sent me uh, discusses that people who are focused, they're very good at focusing on a particular thing, those neurons actually have more myelin around them. Myelin is the protein around neurons that allows them to function like they're supposed to. And he said on a biomechanical level, when you really focus on something that's important, your body actually creates more myelin around these neurons to make your brain work better. There's research to back that up. Your discomfort with the way you are emotionally, physically, spiritually could be something as simple as you've been multitasking for too many years. After I worked in a call center, Faith, Sister Faith worked over there, John was my manager over there for a while, I felt like I had brain damage. I mean, I felt like it re-engineered the way my brain functioned. And I, I think it did. For years after working in it, because when you're in an environment where you're talking to over 100 people a day, the phone has like one or two seconds between calls, people are instant messaging you on the computer at the same time, you're checking your personal email because you don't want to listen completely to all the stories they're telling you because it's too depressing. And your neighbor beside you is asking you how to help this caller with this issue they don't know how to do. And somebody behind you is having a suicidal caller that they're panicking about. And you do that all day, every day. When you quit that, you go home and you sit there about to eat dinner and you say, I need a book and I need the TV on. I need all these multitasking. What does Scripture say? In quietness... And confidence shall be your strength. In returning and rest shall you be saved. I had to re-engineer the way my brain worked to have any peace in my life. And you know what it took? A lot of days where I ignored people. Going out on a Saturday, not answering my phone, not responding to some of y'all when you called. It didn't matter. Because I wasn't spiritually sane. Now, maybe that's enough of you laughing at how weird I am. I want to tell you, there is, and you need to realize this too, there is a depression that's demonic. There is a spiritual captivity that's demonic. There is a spiritual insanity that's demonic. The result, here's how you can know whether you're dealing with that. This is one way. When you're dealing with something on a spiritual level, instead of just mechanical or chemical or dietary or practical there's a change in your character. It results in a selfishness and a defiance and a self-will. A hatefulness. Criticalness. We see this in Saul. I, I feel like I've been up here quite a while, so I don't want to read too much, but I need to read a little bit. First Samuel 16. Saul was anointed to be the king. The people chose him. King Saul. Head and shoulders taller above everybody, strong. The Lord told the prophet Samuel that he had chosen a man after his own heart to be the king over his people. 
Samuel went to the house of Jesse to anoint this man, and his sons passed before him, and he kept thinking, Lord, surely this one's it. And the Lord kept saying, no, I don't see as man sees. Men look on the outward appearance, I look on the heart. I have chosen this other one for me. And so he got through all the sons. He said, don't you have any more? And he said, yeah, we've got the runt. He's out in the field. He said, go get him. So he brings him. He anoints David to be king. David, in his honest humility of who he was, he's already been anointed king of Israel, and he doesn't do anything about it. Just like we read in Isaiah... Those people needed to rest and wait on the Lord. Some of us, some of some people here, maybe some people listening to this recording, some of your spiritual insanity, some of this unease that you have is because you feel like God has given you a promise that hasn't come to pass yet. God didn't just give David a promise. He had the prophet anoint him as king and therefore he was to be king as if it was predestined, no matter what. And what did David do? He went back and worked for his dad as basically a servant. And he waited. You want to make yourself crazy, try to get ahead of the timing of God. It doesn't matter if He's told you... Listen, if He's told you something, He will bring it to pass. Sometimes... i got to go back over here and read that Isaiah again. 18th verse, Isaiah 30. Therefore will the Lord wait... Sometimes in the midst of a trial, a depression, despair, whatever you're dealing with, you say, Lord, why haven't you helped? And he's sitting back there saying, I keep waiting for you to stop relying on Egypt. Stop venting to your friends. Stop relying on your therapist. Stop uh, binge eating on your ice cream. That's, That's one of my therapies. Stop all that stuff. And then sit there and wait for me to answer you. That was the difference from the foundation in David and Saul. And this is what I'm talking... I'm trying to get to the point of there is a mental unrest that is demonic that Saul experienced. David knew that because David, after he was anointed to be king, went home, worked for his father as a servant. Saul... Here's what it says in the 14th verse. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. I don't know when it happens, or how far you have to go, or how backslidden you have to get. How faithless, how mean, how unserious about God. But there is a time that He can withdraw from you the presence of His Spirit. And when that happens, it creates a spiritual vacuum that can be occupied by demonic influence or self-doubt or any other kinds of evil things. That is what happened to Saul. God withdrew his spirit. He said, you've done enough on your own. I'm tired of your self-reliance. I'm tired of your fleshly pride and arrogance. I'm tired of you relying on your own machoism. I have selected somebody who's going to have a heart like my heart. I'm done with you. And he withdrew his presence, his anointing, from Saul. Now, was Saul saved? I believe he was. Did he get unsaved? Did he go to hell? No, not if he really knew the Lord. You've experienced the difference in a man who preaches with an anointing of the Holy Spirit and one who's up there just going through the motions because somebody told him to. 
There's a difference. That is what we're talking about here. God had chosen this man based on the people's will to do a job, and when he was no longer fit, when he was no longer one that could be used by God because of his own self-reliance and pride, the Lord rejected him. And he withdrew that anointing presence of his spirit, and Saul was no longer... He was no longer sane. You know what he did not long after that? He went and found a, 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 witch, a witch. And he said, God's not answering me anymore. I need you to call up the prophet to speak to me. <laughs> what is that called? Ne- necrom- necromancy? or I, I don't know if that's the word. Bringing up the dead? That's, that's pretty bad. I know... People who claim to be Christian, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, who will go to fortune tellers because God hasn't answered their prayers. It may be harmless. You may get into a demonic involvement. If there's a vacuum, if there's a spiritual vacuum inside you. So, Saul is in bad shape. He's got this spiritual vacuum. It has been filled up with evil and hatred. So much hatred. They bring David to play for him. It's the only thing that calms him down. And you remember Saul kept trying to kill him? He would have this insane fit. I've encountered people who have those. He throws a javelin, tries to pin him to the wall. And David, who's already been anointed to be the king, is there (laughs) just taking it. Oh, he ran away when he had to. But he was doing his job to support the king. Until the appointed time, he waited on the Lord. Here's another way David had sanity. When he got done with Saul, he went back to his father's field. He went and sat under the stars. Sat out there with the bears and the lions and protected the sheep. That restored his sanity. And David was a man. Even though Saul was a self-willed man, he never listen, he never completely surrendered that sin of rebellion inside of him. His self-will. Never let go of it. David did over and over and over. That's why he stayed sane. That's why even through the, one of the worst sins you can imagine, he still was a man after God's heart. David experienced this. He saw Saul lose the presence and the power and the anointing of God. He knew that Saul went down after he had lost this anointing of the Spirit of God and he went down to a battle and the people were still upholding him as a leader. He decided to make a sacrifice on his own. And we need to hear this in this culture. Self-willed service of the Lord doesn't impress Him. What He wants is our hearts. What He wants is people who say, Lord, I'm hungry for You. You know what Saul's problem really was? It's what Oswald Chambers said. My claim to my right to myself. My claim to my right to myself. Or as a child will tell you in the most honest terms, that little (laughs) baby there, (laughs) my mommy... (laughs) I'm thinking, well, she's not my mommy. I know she's your mommy. Or something else. I don't remember what it was. I said I like something. It's, I like that. <laughs> the parents said, well, two people can like the same thing. It's okay. <laughs> my claim to my right to myself, it's built in. So David saw this. He was trained up in it. And you know what he prayed? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because he knew, just like Moses knew, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, how else will the nation know that we're your people? 
Brothers and sisters, if the presence of God, if you're saved and the presence of God doesn't remain in you in an empowering, anointing way, you will struggle with some spiritual insanity. You will. I like this quote from C.S. Lewis. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences. But he shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You experience pain. This is what I want to close with. Have you had mental pain, spiritual anguish, emotional pain? Listening to this recording, maybe you don't know any of us, maybe you've never heard me preach before, and maybe all of this seems a little crazy, and yet there's something deep down inside of you that's telling you that you need to keep listening. Pain's God's megaphone. He's trying to get your attention. You're miserable for a reason. You're miserable because there's something wrong with you. I'm talking now to people who've never experienced the peace of God for the first time. If that's the case, you need to surrender to Him. You need to pray. You need to seek Him. You need to throw yourself on Him. Say, I don't know how to do that. Well, if you're visual, imagine yourself flying through the air and landing in His arms. If you're uh, not, just (laughs) repent. What does that mean? It means turn away from every fleshly Egyptian reliance and go rely on God and wait on Him until He gives you peace that you know is peace. Before I conclude, for the saved people, I I talked briefly to the lost. If you've never had peace, seek the Lord. Those of you who have had peace at some point in your life, maybe you had a moment where God saved you, maybe you've had fleeting moments of peace since then, maybe... Turmoil is the rule in your life. I've experienced months of that at different times. Some people I know experienced years of it. Talk to some preacher who ran for 20 years or something. His family will tell you he wasn't pleasant. (laughs) He wasn't a good husband and father like he could have been because he always had this pain inside that he never surrendered to the Lord. What, What is your thing? What kind of thorn do you have? What are you dealing with? Whatever it is, you could sacrifice it on Jesus' altar. Oh, some people it's lust. If you're a man, you probably have that one. Some people it's fear. I'm going to overgeneralize and say if it's a woman, you probably have that one. Control. All kinds of people trying to handle your own future. Time to let go of control, the illusion that you can do anything about anything. You know what you can do? Make your bed in the morning. Do your dishes. (laughs) Mop, if you want to. (laughs) What do you have control over other than stuff like that? Put gas in your car, you still don't know if it's going to run. Some of you, I want this people here to hear this. Some of you have substance abuse issues. You're not alcoholics. You're not on drugs. But I know so many people that are such good people that Satan can't destroy them with drugs, alcohol, or lewd behavior. He uses food. Now, I'm not being critical. 
But that's something you need to surrender to God. It's a substance abuse issue. If you're using food to feel better. I've done it. I don't really look like it. Although my grandfather told me this morning I was fat. So maybe I do look like it. There's people, and maybe I pray this has been crucified in this congregation, but regret and bitterness. Oh, we got to let go of that stuff. Pride and self-reliance. Let go of it. You don't have control. I'm going to leave you with this. Everything in this life is temporary. Everything. I got together the other day with one of my life mentors, who's a high school teacher of mine and a dear friend, and he didn't get married till he was 40. And um, he said it was worth the wait. He said, I would have waited 50 years for this woman. That's how he feels. He said, you know what I realized when I was 35? I'm not going to be married in heaven anyway. <laughs> what does it matter? <laughs> Everything in this life is temporary. Even I say that a little bit with humor, but with all sincerity, as important as marriage is, even though it's an institution created by God to be a picture of the love of Jesus and His church, even that most important institution of God is temporary. Do you know that? There's no marriage in heaven except between Jesus and His bride. All the, even the most important thing in this culture, from a Christian perspective, is temporary. Listen, even I rent my body. I rent it. I'm only living in this body temporarily, and I phrase it like that on purpose, not because I'm influenced by Hinduism. They say, uh, you have a soul. No, you are a soul, you have a body. That's a biblical idea too. I am who I am, and this body is something I'm in in the meantime. It's a tent, it's a fleshly tabernacle that I'm going to discard, and God's going to give me a body He intended me to have that's going to be free from everything I've been preaching about lately. In the meantime... What are we going to do? Renew ourselves with the strengthening of our minds through the Word of God. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Against such there is no law. Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Part of why David went back to sanity over and over, even when he got away. He said, I meditate on your law. The night watches. And the mornings. I want to encourage you to do that. Have peace. Let go. Let go. Whatever it is you need to let go of. I don't really know how to conclude. I tell you what, if, if we were in a, an auditorium and had a whole bunch of people, I'd give a nice altar call. Come forward, pray, let go of whatever you're leaning on. Whatever you have enslaving you. Whatever it is, let go of it. It only causes more unrest and more peacelessness. You listen to this recording, you need to know that. You hear, you need to know that. I'm going to conclude and just stop. And um, you seek the Lord.